Welcome to the Silver Screen Guide Podcast, where we discuss films from every genre. So sit back, relax, and enjoy the podcast. You disobey me, you puppy! Today we are discussing The Road Warrior Mad Max 2. This is your co-host Corbin. I'm Alan, and uh, yeah, this is a very interesting, it's kind of an interesting title because it's Mad Max 2 for essentially the rest of the world aside from the US, which was called The Road Warrior, because I didn't think it would do very well in the box office, and then it did really well. So now it's kind of adopted both titles of Mad Max 2 and (laughs) The Road Warrior, so whatever. Oh yeah, it's confusing because I have never seen this movie before. I've never seen any of these Mad Max movies aside from Fury Road, which is the fourth one. That was my introduction to Mad Max. What a what a glorious introduction. Yes. But yeah, The Road Warrior, I was confused because when I initially was hearing or just when I had heard in passing about these movies, I thought The Road Warrior was the first movie. I thought that's just what it was called, The Road Warrior. And then they thought, hey, he kind of had a cool name. Like they called him Mad Max in it. So let's just call the rest of the series Mad Max and then subtitle it. But that's gotcha. not correct at all. Yeah, I I always got Beyond Thunderdome and The Road Warrior mixed up in the timeline. Because I knew mm. that the original Mad Max, which is called Mad Max, is the first one. And Mad Max Fury Road is the fourth one. But I was confused. I kept getting these two confused: Fury Road and Beyond Thunderdome, with how with, with where they place in terms of release date. Um, I've got to figure it out now because now I know that there are two titles to uh, The Road Warrior, of Mad Max Two and The Road Warrior. So, whatever I guess I th- I got to figure it out now. Yeah, and I'm pretty sure in this movie, they like really don't ever refer to him as Max or Mad Max. If they do, it's briefly but i don't know why yeah. they would because nobody would know his name unless he told them and they they might but it just seemed really apparent to me that calling him max wasn't um wasn't obvious at least uh they do refer to him as the road warrior i believe in the beginning and end monologues though yeah yeah they they do refer to max as the road warrior but yeah aside from using his uh his name max i don't yeah i don't think they ever really do and if they do it's very very brief so yeah mostly it's i do know that in like the trailers and stuff and for a lot of the promotional promotional material for the u.s they kind of tried to hide away that it was max because they didn't really want to relate this as much to the original mad max uh which of course once you go in and watch the the opening prologue you it's kind of given to you that this is a, a continuation if you've seen the original but yeah. for at least the promotional material, they they didn't like I explicitly say that this was a sequel to the original. Right. And the reason, like Alan mentioned, was because apparently the first movie wasn't popular in North America, or at least it wasn't popular enough to try and market it as a sequel because people would probably think, what? I don't even remember the first one. So they did. They just called it The Road Warrior, but then they mashed the titles together and rearranged them and it all got confusing and but it was successful and successful enough to call the third one mad max beyond thunderdome and uh from what i understand many consider this to be one of the greatest action films and sequels ever made yeah for a lot of lists this is in their like top 
blank like talking about like top 100 99 it's it's up there for not only just one of the best action films but also just straight up one of the best films ever made uh especially coming coming off of the original mad max so yeah this has got quite the reputation and i've heard it from a lot of people that if it isn't fury road that's the best it's this one this one by most standards it's either this one or, or fury road that are considered the two that are the best in term that are in this quadrilogy i suppose you could say yeah, that, that was really interesting to me last time we talked. And if you haven't had, heard our first episode, listeners, go ahead and go back into the archives or just look in the description below and you'll find the link to our first review so you'll be able to catch up. But that was interesting to me. And if you do check the IMDb scores, this is second highest in the ratings, whereas Fury Road is the highest rated Mad Max right. film. Right. And, I mean, its success also kind of goes as far as having its own museum put up in the town that it was filmed in. Broken Hill, <laughs> uh, I think it's New Wales, no, it's like New, yeah, New South Wales is where this movie was filmed. Mm. And so, like, a years after, I think it was, like, early 2000s, they erected this uh, museum. I don't know if it's just for this movie. I'm sure it's for, like, all Mad Max uh, movies sure. in, uh, in one. But, yeah, after the release of Mad Max 2 and beyond, they eventually put up a museum uh, in the town of Broken Hill. Oh. So that's kind of cool. Wow, that is cool. Yeah, I did not yeah. know that. Um, what Something I did know that I was surprised to find out, at least, is one of the main antagonists in this film, his name is Wes, kind of has the red in his hair, and um, his rear end is, like, hanging out of his leather chaps half the movie. That was really pleasant. <laughs> yeah. Yep. Um, he's played by Vernon Wells, and we've actually reviewed Bern- Vernon Wells' performance before in the movie Commando. Uh, he plays Bennett, okay. who is the main antagonist, the guy who is completely out of shape with the mustache. Yeah. And he has the knife. Uh, and he's always, he's got the funny hair and the earrings and he looks really different. I was surprised to find that was him. Of course, he's younger in this movie and completely dressed up differently and different body build and everything. But I was like, oh, hey, we've seen him before. Now that I think about it, I'm not sure if that episode was ever made public though. That was initially a paid episode and it still might be. So listeners, you probably have no idea what we thought of his performance (laughs) in that. But I was to say that's been a while since we talked about that episode. That was in the early days of Silver Screen Guide. Yeah. That was like our, oh geez, like fourth podcast or something. Yeah. That was a part of our first retrospective series. That was our kind of our bonus episode of our Rambo series. So listeners, if you do want to go pay for that episode, it's pretty cheap. It's like a dollar. Go ahead and pay for that, and you can hear what we think about that fun, cheesy 80s film, Commando. And also, I guess we should just say we're going to be coming back to our Rambo retrospective this year. We are. They announced. Rambo Last Blood will be out uh, just a little bit after the summer is is over, kind of maybe early fall. Yeah, I think I read September. If I'm not correct, yeah. if I'm not mistaken, uh, we'll also have to talk about that title though. That's uh, good. Well, well, I mean that is a few weeks. That's a few weeks away. But yes, sure. Rainbow is returning, which is funny because it's our very first retrospective that we did, and now it's all coming full circle. I guess you could say. Yep, just like in Rainbow Three, full circle. That's yep. what they say in that movie. Go listen to the episode, and you'll know what we're talking about. But it was this movie. 
The Road Warrior was perceived very well at the time. I was a little surprised to see Roger Ebert gave it three and a half out of four stars because oh, wow. he just considered it such a, a really great pure action movie and i think that's what most people remember this movie for is they perceive it as just this adrenaline rush of non-stop action it's not really about the story or the characters per se it's just about the intense car chases it's amped up from the last movie right and it's kind of funny because after mad max was released and it it went nuts in the box office i think it i think the last time we talked about it it made around 100 million or so uh, and I think the worldwide gross, which is a lot of money compared to the budget that it had. Uh, George Miller was actually approached by a lot of people to return to Hollywood and make a movie for, for Hollywood. One of them is First Blood. They wanted him to record, they wanted him to direct the movie First Blood, uh, which is funny because we were just talking about that. But he, he didn't really want to do any of that stuff. And eventually they did return to Mad Max, but they had a lot of pressure going into making a sequel because everyone wanted a sequel from them. And eventually, I don't think, I'm not saying that they caved, but they eventually, he got, was like, what would we do if we returned to Mad Max? And then that led down the road of crafting a script and all kinds of stuff. And now we're here. So it is kind of funny that uh, he was approached by Hollywood for a lot of different projects, but most notably First Blood. And were you talking about the first Mad Max grossing $100 million? Yeah, like worldwide, it grossed a ton of money. I want to say I want to say it was $100 million, but maybe I'm wrong about that. Could that be upon re-releases, though, not just it is, initially? It is possible. I Let think that's it probably up. it. Yeah, it but. is possible that, it was, that some of that is due to re-releases. Well, okay. Domestically, it made a eight point seven million, almost eight point eight million. But that's just in the United States. That's all they have here. Hmm. So it might be adjusted. Who knows? That's just what I read. Is a hundred million? Uh, I think it was on Wikipedia or something that I got that number from. Yeah, they could also be including home video releases for that number. Right. Because it was a fairly limited release in Australia, and then it was still fairly limited worldwide, I think. And ultimately, this one was a wider release, but still not a really wide release. I mean, maybe for the time, it was pretty decent. But from what I saw, Warner Brothers did distribute it, and they've been distributing ever since. Right, and there was kind of a uh, an interesting release with AIP because they were going, they were changing ownership from I forget who they owned by previously, but they were changing right. over to Filmways Incorporated, and that kind of hurt the release of Bad Max Two, uh, which is and upon all of this, it was changed to The Road Warrior for the U.S. Um, because it didn't do so hot, and. So this also kind of hurt this release when it was coming out is Warner Bros and AIP changing over from one to the other, from from different changing owners and all kinds of stuff. I did check opening weekend. It did come in fourth with two and a half million, which is about half of its budget. Mm -hmm. And it was beat out by Conan the Barbarian. Oh. Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. I've never heard of that. And Porky's. I think I've heard of that. I haven't heard of that, but I've heard of Porky's. I haven't seen it. I hear it's kind of raunchy, I think. Mm. But, of course, Conan was the big kind of uh, blockbuster oh, yeah. of the time. Oh, yeah. 
But I do know that it did end up doing pretty well in the U.S. I think it's total gross. I, I want I, no, you know, this is well. It's kind of hard to say if this is worldwide, but this total gross was twenty three point six million. I know that eleven point three million of that was from the U.S. and Canada. So right. still a from good release, worldwide... though. Oh no, yeah, sorry, that's I got that a good release for. Yeah, I got that wrong. It is twenty three point seven million for U.S. and Canada uh, alone. And ten point eight million for Australia. There we go. Yeah, so likely the worldwide gross is around thirty-three million for a budget of four and a half million. That's a pretty good take. Oh, yeah. So they made a good profit off of that, I would say. Yeah, and that's not counting other parts of the world that this movie was released in. I don't know if they have released those numbers anywhere. To Probably see what not. the actual worldwide gross is. This may be the actual worldwide gross is how much it made between Australia and the U.S. That's my guess. Kind of yeah. hard to say, but yeah. That would be my guess. But before we jump into the plot, uh, I want to give you a warning, listeners, that we will be spoiling Mad Max 2 The Road Warrior. So if you haven't seen it before and you do want to see it, go ahead and click pause right now. Go watch the movie, come back and click play, and we'll be ready to talk about it. Sometime after the events of its predecessor, Mad Max, our main lead, Max, now roams the desert with the same V8 pursuit vehicle that he left, uh, that he stole from the previous from the previous movie. If you, I, we don't really know how long it's been, but it sounds like it's been a, at least a few years since the events of the first one. He has a new partner now, which is a dog. Max, in the beginnings of the movie, Max comes across a seemingly abandoned gyrocopter and makes an attempt to steal its gasoline, but is jumped by a man and a snake. Max overpowers the captain, and but spares his life when the gyro captain, which he will later be helmed as, informs Max as a, of a community that has thousands upon thousands of gallons of gasoline. In now, it should be noted in this world, gasoline is considered a very big commodity and is heavily sought after by many a folk. Max uh, and a sort of new comrade gyro captain hide away in a nearby hill and find that a gang led by Lord Humongous is attempting to steal the gasoline from the community. A couple from the settlement try to sneak out to find something to transport their tank of fuel elsewhere, but are, inse- but are intercepted by Lord Humongous's protege, Wes, and his crew. The woman is raped and, the- and left to die, while the man is left with little, with little life in him. Max comes across him uh, and helps him back to the complex as a means to get inside. Unfortunately, the man does not survive, and Max is chained to a post while the settlers decide what to do with the gasoline and with Max. Lord Humongous has given them one day to give them to give them their fuel, or he will destroy the town and take it and forcibly take it from them. Max breaks free from free from his cuffs, but and strikes a deal with the settlers. He knows where he can get a semi to transport the fuel, but requires as much fuel as he can carry and and his freedom in return. The settlers reluctantly agree and stock him full of gasoline while he walks his way back to the gyrocopter, meeting with his captain along the way, and eventually coming coming across the semi he saw earlier. Max just makes it back in the main gate of the settlement after being attacked by Wes and his men. The settlers ask Max to drive the semi, but he refuses and requests his fuel to leave. He drives off, is followed by Wes. He is driven off the road and his pursuit vehicle is demolished. Max's dog is killed and his car is self-destructs when one of Wes's men tries to siphon fuel from his tank. Luckily, the gyro captain saw the smoke from the explosion and rescues Max upon before and rescues Max from death. Max agrees after returning to the settlement to drive the tanker as the, he is the best driver that they have, despite his injuries. 
The settlement packs up and heads out. Humongous's gang chases after them, and his small posse heads back into the town, but are caught in its self-destruction. The semi flies through the desert, but is pursued by Humongous and friends. Uh, but eventually, the semi is forced off the road and flips. It is revealed that the that is revealed that the tanker they were hauling isn't filled with fuel at all, but sand. The real fuel is with the settlers, hidden away in their vehicles, who are miles away by this point. The gyro captain meets up with the settlers after being shot down and comes across and becomes a new leader. The settlers head towards the coasts to start their new tribe, to be known as the Great North Tribe, as Max stays behind to roam the desert as credits roll. Now, this is an interesting opening to the film where we have this old man narrating the history of how the world essentially fell uh, into chaos and anarchy. The civil society was destroyed. And I understand that in the first movie, that's what they were alluding to, but it really didn't. It seemed like this kind of hybrid, civilized, outlaw world, whereas this is just a completely brand new, savage, Old Testament-style outlaw world with crazy turf wars and dictators and stuff. But we get this old man narrating the, the road warrior and... Um, this wasted land, a man who wandered out into the wasteland, which just so happens to be the supposed title to the sequel, Fury Road, Mad Max, The Wasteland. So hopefully we'll get that someday, but we'll see. I just thought it was interesting. They used that quite a bit, but, and uh, they also, I thought of, very much thought of uh, Sam Raimi's Evil Dead 2 with this opening. Have you seen that one, Alan? I haven't yet, and I need to, but I haven't. Well. It's interesting because when you see it, you'll notice what I'm talking about because Evil Dead 2 was in certain ways, at least the opening, a rebranding, kind of a reimagining of the first one. Right. It's kind of like, this is what I wish I could have done or I had more ideas. Let's beef it up and kind of like redo it this way. And Evil Dead 2 came out in 87. This came out in 81. So most likely Sam Raimi saw George Miller's version. He was like, ah. I'm going to do that because Evil Dead 2 opens with the narration, recounts the events of the first movie, retcons right. them just a bit, and then kind of gives you a brand new package that still feels familiar. So, right. and we do get reused footage uh, from the first movie. Yeah, we do. And this kind of just sets up that it is, in fact, a sequel from the first one. Things have changed both in terms of filmmaking and also in terms of what kind of themes we're going to get ourselves into. Uh and it is also interesting to note that uh, gasoline, which we did kind of mention in the last podcast, but only very briefly because it was only kind of mentioned in the movie and one scene, gasoline has essentially become uh, more like currency nowadays, where in order to get from one place to another, you need gasoline, right? And so now gasoline in this world has pretty much taken over uh everyone's lives they need to have gasoline to survive more or less in this wasteland so it's interesting to see how this uh this fuel that came from the earth they're essentially using it now as more of i guess more like water than anything else yeah that is an interesting point to bring up because in the old days nomadic desert dwellers would need to go from like watering hole to watering hole to right. ensure their camels or horses had, you know, hydration to move around. Well, that's pretty much obsolete in the 21st 
well, even the 20th century, with vehicles. So the black oil is what they call it here in the beginning, was this hot commodity that the world tore itself apart over. And now Max kind of comes in between this turf battle between the humongous clan and do we do we get a name for these for this little outpost here of people that wear white all the time i guess i don't know if it's ever stated stated in the movie i just called it the settlement in my notes uh that's i didn't find any like name for it anywhere so yeah everybody's name is really basic here the warrior woman is we'll talk about her later feral kid Mm-hmm. Uh, who is actually more important than we realize. Spoiler alert, he is the old man. Yep. Uh, he, is. he learns to speak really eloquently. <laughs> <laughs> that really threw me for a loop. Mm-hmm. But most importantly, we learn here in the opening, th- this wasteland was where Max learned to live again. Because right. I guess he... I guess he was just a greedy oil person now and just was killing people. He, he, I guess he was just become, had more, more animalistic. He was just driven by the Nietzsche ethic, you know, survival of the fittest. But right. now it's not really about that. We learned that through the movie. Right. Yeah. And from the events of the, of the last movie, we talked about how Max kind of walks away from, uh, Johnny the boy and his execution. Mm-hmm. We don't know if Johnny Boy died, but it sure does insinuate that he did. Uh, yeah. This the situation that he sets up, which we mostly talked about, and how Max kind of uh, has fallen away from his police force mentality, where he wants to stay and cre- and keep order and all kinds of things like that. Now he's pretty much the complete opposite that he was from the beginning of the first one, and we do get to see throughout the events of this one how he kind of changes and becomes more like he was in the first Mad Max. Uh, than from the beginning here, we because it is this journey to become to have more life. This is brought up in the very opening of the movie, where uh, helping this civilization or helping this community or the settlement, uh, he does get to more or less find his, I guess, humanity again to some extent by helping them out through the events of this one. So yeah, it is interesting that we start off with our main character just about the same as uh, uh, Toe Cutter and his gang, uh, the way that they act. About the same as them in the opening of this one. Oh, sorry. I was looking up something real quick. Don't worry. This is important. (laughs) Okay, good. That will make everything I say true. (laughs) Okay. But as for the plot of this movie, how likely do you think... George Miller watched Star Wars A New Hope and The Empire Strikes Back and picked some ideas from that because in many ways, Max is the Han Solo character. He doesn't really care about anybody. He's like, hey, princess, I'm just here for the gold. I'm here for the reward, which in this would be oil, but eventually he returns and helps them destroy the enemy. I just found a lot of parallels here between... Uh, this and the the two star the first two Star Wars movies. Oh yeah, I can see it now that you're mentioning it. I can see where some ideas of Han Solo were lifted for the character of Max. I mean, it's not like it doesn't make any sense because even f- from the events of the last movie to this one, it makes sense that he would be more of a not so caring person 
and living more individ- individualistically. Uh, but yes, I can definitely see where they would lift some ideas from Star Wars. And I mean, I do know that Max himself, uh, more from this movie, was voted as like one of the best uh, protagonists in a movie ever. And if you list Sue. Yeah, he's a cool character. He's kind of a one of those shadowy drifters that you don't know much about. Right. But he's tough and he's there to help but add a personal gain and will he learn something it's kind he's more of an archetypal character Mm -hmm. than anything i would say but we do open with a car chase and it that kind of seems like there has to be a car chase now with every mad max movie which is cool that's fine with me it's a good way to get me into the movie and it's a good way to show the world and kind of like everybody's place in the world right and i can already tell also by the set design that they're working with a bigger budget it's a higher caliber than the last movie yeah it actually feels like a wasteland where the last one uh they the last movie kind of played with what they had uh and you can still tell the idea that they're going for but there is also um a lot there left to be desired especially when they get into like the inner cities and stuff it feels more like modern day whereas now it feels like the rest of the world is like this little wasteland that they're in uh everything's kind of just desert as far as the eye can see uh and so it works it, it, you can tell that there's a much bigger budget here not just in terms of set design but also in terms of cinematography Mm-hmm. And how what how they what, what kind of explosions and destruction they will have later on in this movie? You can tell that there's a huge increase in budget just by the way that this movie looks. Oh yeah, everything is a much higher caliber, and I would say that adds to at least for me the enjoyment factor mm-hmm. of it. It feels just like a, a well more well rounded experience. Oh, yeah. it I would feels, absolutely agree. Yeah, it feels less like a student film and more like an actual theatrical film that they were able to really put some stuff into because yeah we we even know for a fact that the last movie they didn't even have permission to film in certain locations so they're just like let's shoot it really quick and so for all intents and purposes that was george miller's first movie so in a way it was very much a student film yeah and if i'm not mistaken this is his second film but yeah uh, he's, he's improving a lot more i'd say yeah he definitely has an eye for stuff which we know we'll get to see later on I'm assuming uh, Beyond Thunderdome, but definitely in Fury Road. Right. Um, We'll get to see more where his eye comes from uh, and how he'll be able to kind of, I guess, live what he's thinking, more or less. Now, as for the intensity of this opening scene, I still think the last movie's opening scene was better, at least intensity-wise. Yeah, I would would agree with that. But I do think that, at least with this opening scene, it does help get us into this is much different than what we were in two years ago with the original mm-hmm. Mad Max. Things are a bit different now because now it's not really set in like a rural area. It's more set right. in the basically the middle of nowhere. Yeah. Um, I did find it really cheesy when the dummy fell out of the semi truck. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, oh, gosh. That looked horrible. And yeah. also, I have to mention the the blackout fades are back. <laughs> yeah i mean this be honest here there is still some 80s cheese left mm-hmm. in here uh that's just oh, a product yeah. of its time but yeah that will for a more modern audience it'll be rather strange to see 
One thing this film, at least the story, is doing much better is getting us into the plot right away and then staying consistent with what the plot is. Whereas the first film was incredibly meandering as to who even our uh, main protagonist was because Max was shown in the beginning, but then it jumped to Goose for quite a bit and then back to Max and... It was really all over the place, not only with tone like we discussed, but just with what is the plot here? Who is like who are are facing off against each other for Pete's sake? Whereas now we can clearly see that there are two major parties. Max is thrown into the middle of them. And he I think honestly, we could think he could go either way because he's really in it for himself. Right. Yeah. This movie, for all intents and purposes, feels a bit more focused than the last one does, which is interesting to say because uh, the last one in some ways kind of benefited from its nuttiness and how the story was told, but in most ways also kind of detracted from uh, the story. And this one, it feels a lot more focused. Like they kept to a central idea, which is this battle between uh, greed and the good of humanity. It's an interesting feud between these two parties of, uh, the gang of humongous and then this little settlement that Max is kind of in between of. Yeah, they do keep things focused, but at the same time, I do kind of enjoy the craziness from the last one just kind of for fun's sake because that one, although it, like we mentioned in the last, in the last podcast, the story doesn't really get, begin until about halfway into the movie, we think. <laughs> yeah. And even then, it's kind of hard to say that that's the actual story. Uh, this one, it keeps itself focused for its own, its entire runtime and doesn't really detract or derail anywhere pat anywhere uh, that it doesn't really need to go. And I like the craziness of the world building here. Yeah. So if you've seen Fury Road, then you'll be right at home with the Road Warrior because oh, yeah. I can already tell there is so much taken from this movie and then put into the Fury Road. But just I would say. We'll talk about that in that podcast, but you can just see that with each Mad Max movie is what I'm assuming. Miller is developing his world and just making them better. He's like furthering his craft because he's becoming a more experienced filmmaker with how writing goes, narratively, editing, set design. You can just tell with each movie the caliber is going up. So I'm, I'm excited for that. I like that. Yeah. I'm excited to see what Beyond Thunderdome has to offer now that I've seen Two, which what you just mentioned is taking as some ideas that will be taken later from Fury Road. So I'm excited to see where Thunderdome lands in all of this because I've heard some not so great things about it, but I've also heard other things that it's also very very good. We'll get to it in a few. Uh, I think it's actually next week. Uh, no, no, it's a few weeks from now. But yeah. So it, it is also interesting too that we get this little. I guess it's kind of a MacGuffin. It's kind of hard to say. It's this music box. That he finds uh, from the dead man in the semi. And it plays Happy Birthday. But every time that Max has a hold of it, he never finishes the song hmm. that's on there. I think the I think I know he gets it to the Pharaoh Kid, but I think I think that he the Pharaoh Kid actually does finish it one time. But every time Max is around it or has it in his hand, he never finishes the happy birthday song. He stops like I think like one note before the ending. And- I okay. You'll have to help me out. What are they supposed to be doing with that? Because honestly, I overlooked that because it seemed to be such a non-factor in the plot. Yeah, 
My guess is uh, it has more to do with showing that Max's innocence is completely lost at this point. Okay. Uh, he doesn't finish the happy birthday song. Uh, he gives it to a kid who ends up, who does finish it. Uh, it's kind of, I guess, more of a lead-in to show that he lost his innocence and that he's kind of, kind of, I guess, kind of gained more back of his humanity. It's pretty cryptic. It's, I'm guessing, more of a plot device to get him to make a connection with the feral kid when he tries to leave. Uh, there isn't too much given. There isn't too much, I guess, focus on this aspect of the movie. Okay, is that what was going on when he was okay when he was leaving the compound area, the settlement, and he had all those like gas cans? The scene got so dark. I think the feral kid was involved with it. That whole scene was lost on me because I couldn't even see what was going on. It was so dark. So maybe I missed it. Maybe that's why. Yeah. Uh, was that towards the end? Uh, it was right. Or it was, like, it was just like right end. before he was uh, going to get the semi. He was leaving to get the semi. Okay. And I I do believe he gave the music box to the kid around that time. Um, yeah, I missed it. It yeah. was so dark. It was so darkly shot for at least on my screen. Yeah. Anyway, I was I was watching it in my theater room and I could not make out what was going on. <laughs> Uh, okay. Dang it! I had no problem seeing seeing things. You you cranked the brightness up. I didn't. I guess I should have. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps. Well, I guess we should also talk about because there's a number of characters in this, and one of the more important characters, I guess, is the gyro captain. I just always called him Gyro. Yeah, he isn't exactly given a name until the very end. Yes. <laughs> Until the 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 settlement says that that he's now being claimed as the I guess the new ruler <laughs> the, the gyro name. captain, and they gave him <laughs> the name of the gyro captain. Uh, which, by the way, it should be noted that his gyrocopter is destroyed in this whole mess when they're trying to escape. Yeah, we'll get to that. In the, we'll get to that eventually. But yeah, he's probably the one of the most important characters that's in the story. Uh, aside from Max, because he becomes essentially his partner, especially there towards the end. Yeah, I would say he is a fun character, be- not only for the comedic element, because Max is kind of keeping him as a slave for reasons unknown, I guess, so he just doesn't get double-crossed or something, so he can use his equipment mm-hmm. later on. Um, he does have some funny lines in there about like eating a snake. And I'm not letting the dog eat the snake because he trained the snake. Yep. So he can eat the snake. <laughs> then he uses the snake yep. as a weapon. He drops it on people to crash their cars. Um, but he is kind of a, I would say, a good companion to kind of balance out Max. Because Max is so kind of quiet and brooding. Whereas this guy is much more talkative. He's an interesting character because he's so tall and his outfit's interesting because it's kind of colorful he's like wearing long underwear and a hat or something and he's got this interesting vehicle that they need to use to kind of fix the no not fix the plot but you know fix what's going on with the situation (laughs) yeah (laughs) um yeah so i would say he is uh he's a good balance for the dynamic duo yeah, he is, and it's also interesting that Max in this one is more quiet than he was in the last one, because he was pretty quiet in the, in the previous movie, but yes. now we get more of that traditional Mad, Mad Max character, where he's very quiet, very brooding, doesn't say too much, is always kind of thinking that you can, you can always tell that he's thinking, 
but yeah, he is an interesting, like, I guess, contrast between the between this movie uh, is with these two characters and the gyro captain being that more, I guess, more happier end of the spectrum when it comes to Max and his like balance between these two sides. He has, he does have a very funny opening or uh, introduction where he's like buried himself in the sand, and when Max tries to steal his gasoline from mm-hmm. his uh, gyrocopter, he pops out and starts yelling at him because he Max did see the snake and like was able to wrangle the snake before it bit him. Uh, it's a very funny opening, and he does kind of stick around for with Max and does end up getting involved with this little settlement here with the gasoline, and I guess becomes their captain, which is an interesting thing to for them to do. Because he's kind of a newcomer. Yeah. You, I would assume that since they have uh, the smarts to rig their entire city up with, like, flamethrowers and such, they would probably have the smarts to have, like, I guess some kind of democracy or some kind of government-ish thing put into place. But what do I know? They don't talk about any of that. Yeah, that element of the world building leaves something to be desired. How did they build the settlement and how did they get all of this gasoline for themselves? Mm-hmm. Who's in charge here? Because it supposedly seems like Papagallo is in charge. There's right. also this weird guy dressed up like a army general or something. The warrior woman seems to have some leadership role, but she's woefully underserved. And then yep. on the opposite side of that, we have the humongous crew and he is billed as the humongous because he has big muscles yep and he has a funny voice clearly they have to be imitating arnold schwarzenegger with some of that voice and muscles yeah it, it i could see where they would take some inspiration off of uh the schwarzenegger here is with this character i do i do kind of wish here that they would have explored some i guess some of the inner workings of the city uh, and how it operates and things like that, because they are they do play a pretty major point. I mean, they're a pretty big MacGuffin here in this part with their gasoline. Um, and yeah. so I would have liked for them, like for Mad Max here, to I guess explain or explore the city a bit more, just to kind of get an idea as to how it works and other things of that nature. Because it is an interesting little settlement that they have here, in like just the middle of nowhere, and that this crew this gang keeps trying to take their gasoline away from them i think it would have been it may have went against the movie a little bit to kind of sit down and explain all the inner workings of this town when the main focus is not on that kind of stuff at all but it would be interesting because they this the sentiment does interest me to see to i would like to know more as to how they operate and things of that nature right and they could have done that through a bit more character building instead of just making just cardboard cutout characters and right. propping them up. I understand we're an outsider, just like Max is an outsider, but nevertheless, we could have a couple more stronger character moments than what we get. One of the other odd choices of this movie is usually when you have a villain in a movie, one time or another, you'll cut to the villain and you'll mm-hmm. see his or her perspective of what's going on on their side, their motivations. We never get that here with Humongous making him an incredibly one-dimensional character. And I was bummed out that this kind of weird Jason Voorhees-Arnold Schwarzenegger hybrid comes onto the scene and he's got this big crew. I don't know why. Also the same with, uh, what is his name, Wex or something? Yeah, Wes. Wes. 
Yeah. Also, with both of them, they seem to be interesting characters, but we never cut to like their camp or their point of view or anything they've done. So I was a little disappointed that it's eh, we could have explored that stuff a bit more, but we don't at all. Yeah, I totally agree with you because at least in the last Mad Max, we had is more just in that opening scene where they were introduced. We do get to see kind of how they work and that they're there because their friend died. He was killed. And so they pursue Max because of this. Right. So the motivation makes sense in that movie. The motivation here, aside from we want that gasoline of yours, is pretty much non-existent. Which, I mean, does kind of play to how this world works. That may really only be their only motivation is they'd want that fuel because they want that fuel. That's the only reason why uh, it's a commodity in this world. But I do agree with you. I do would have liked some more character building or something more with these villains that we have. I'm okay with them not really focusing too much on Humongous because, once again, just like the previous Mad Max... We're focusing more on the protege, which is Wes. Most of the time is spent more with Wes than it is with Humongous. Uh, but I would still have liked to have something more than what we're getting here, which may be a product of the times because action movies around this era were kind of shallow and I mean, they still kind of are to some extent. But the motivation there may only just be in purpose, purposefully may have been written this way to just be we want that gasoline. And that's really about it. And the, the sentiment's kind of the same way. They just want to get out of there because they want to get away from all this, which, I mean, makes a bit more sense than the villains that, that are coming up against them. Yeah, and I do also want to note there's a really nice shot. I'd probably say the best shot of the movie of the sunset of them overlooking the valley where I think it's at the end of or somebody's trying to escape out of the settlement or no, that's not it. I remember now. The humongous crew is all like driving away and they're, uh, Max and Gyro are watching them leave. And there's a sunset shot of them overlooking the valley. Best shot of the movie. Really mm. good. Yes, I do remember that shot. That's a very good shot. Uh, I do also enjoy the... This movie is not completely like self-serious like when Gyro pulls out his telescope. That <laughs> is super <Yeah>. long. <laughs> And Max is like, just looks at him and just like takes his away and uh, mm -hmm. uses that. Um, the other thing that does get us on Max's side is that that does make me feel better about him because we're, we're left with these kind of morally ambiguous feelings about him at the end of the last movie. Yeah. I more so landed on the side that he had chosen more so vigilantism or more so chosen revenge, which I couldn't get behind necessarily in that sense. But this sense, he seems to just go after um, the bad guys because, well, they're just evil. But then also he's not one of them and he won't just drive straight into the settlement and, and kill people for their stuff. So I think his kind of moral direction has been clarified in this movie. Yeah, and that's kind of what I mentioned in the last podcast is that there is still a little bit of humanity left in him, but there isn't much. Uh, we do get more of that here where they do show that, yes, that's true, but it's kind of still on the edge. He doesn't exactly go towards really anybody else in this movie aside from the, the, aside from the, uh, the enemy here, which is the gang of uh, Humongous. Aside from that, yeah, he never really charges into this this camp. He's never really shown to do anything outside of, I guess, kind of moving him towards being on the good side of 
of his personality here. And part of that might just be to the way that the movie is written, where there really isn't anybody else that he comes up against. In the opening, he does kind of try to steal the guy's gasoline um, after Hardy's already crashed. But aside from that, it's mostly written around him trying to help the settlement out. Whether he really wants to in the end or not, he ends up doing so. But yeah, it, his his actions here, especially when we get towards the end and when it all finishes up, he we do get to see that even though he has a lot of, I guess, a lot of bad in him or a lot of, uh, I guess, anarchy-ish personality types in him, he still is willing to do good and help this community out, despite him really having no reason to do so because he could just take the gasoline and run, which he does plan on doing, and actually does do until he gets into a wreck. Mm-hmm. And then the scene where he takes the man back to safety, but it's kind of stupid because in this world, that kind of stuff doesn't pay off. Like, they're not really going to hold up that bargain. Right. Uh, I think I found the score in that scene to work well. There's some kind of like low and high strings from what I could determine. I could be wrong. I couldn't really pinpoint it. Yeah. Otherwise, I don't think that I really didn't think about the score in this movie very much. Um, maybe at the end there. I don't know. This was the only scene that really stood out to me that I made a note of the score. Yeah, I would say for really all the way around, the score worked really well for me. Okay. Mostly with those more, I guess, emotional scenes where the music is a bit, uh, a bit more dynamic. In the in the action scenes, I think it's fine. I think it works, but I I really notice it more in the emotional scenes that I was going when it was going for that more bringing up an emotion. I found those most of those tracks to be very very well done. Yes, because the score was a big factor that we talked about in the first movie. It sounded very yep. much like Bernard Herrmann, Hitchcock's horror yep. in certain scenes. That score, although it had many good elements, was a bit all over the place with... And and I, that's just because of the tone of the movie. One minute right. it would be horror, the next minute it would be 80s uh, Bambi-style stuff or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and we do have the same composer coming back. Brian May returns. Once oh, yeah. again, not from Queen. Was it Queen? Yeah. Not yeah, not from Queen, Queen, different guy. No. He's from a different band, I think. So a fan theory that I have for this movie that I'm going to choose to believe is true, but it's most likely very not true. If you check out the back of Humongous' head, it looks like he might have been burned. Um, because he's missing hair, and uh, why else would that happen to somebody? Why would your head look like that? My right. assumption is Johnny survived the explosion, decided to become a bodybuilder, and he and to conceal his face from the burns. He is Lord Humongous, or not Lord the Humongous. Okay, that's my theory. <laughs> I could see it being, I could see it, I could see it, because that would make a little bit of sense in the world where it's kind of, I guess, history repeating itself, where the uh, he has his own protege, which ends up being Wes, and he's also kind of the same way that Johnny was back in the first movie, and uh, he's still somewhat, he's still kind of pursuing Ma- Max, but isn't really, I guess, eyeing him, it's more Wes in this story. I could see it, yeah, I could see where that's, that theory could definitely work in this in this world here. I mean, how great would that be for Max to just be like driving straight at him and then Humongous rip off his mask and he'd be like, it's me, Johnny. (laughs) Don't you remember? You left me for dead. And then just have a horrible quick zoom into Max's face with some nasty high-pitched music, kind Mm -hmm. of like they did in the first one when Max saw Goose. 
that would be so good, but that would be a horribly cheesy, and that would be a step in the wrong direction. But yeah, I don't. Know I mean, what... I can see, I can see where it works. I'm kind of glad that they didn't really explore his character too much because uh, I think in this in this movie sometimes the ambiguity ambiguity of it all does kind of aid in setting up this world where like where you begin to wonder what in the world is this? Where did he come from? And that's where. Uh, it kind of gets some of its flavor is this ambiguity, which we will find out. I'm not actually going to say that because we talked about that movie too much. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, I, I think that I think that some of the ambiguity is, despite there not being a lot of even set up here, I think some of the ambiguity does kind of add to that flavor of Mad Max, uh, the Road Warrior here. Sure. Yeah, we don't want. I've I've come to find out with these Mad Max movies, it's not really about the character development yeah. and the drama. It's about pursuing one goal and do it with a lot of action and explosions, and just get yourself excited about watching a fun action movie. That's what I got from it. Right. Um. So Max does go and find a semi truck from the very beginning. That is where, because he cuts a deal, he said, I'll get you the semi-truck and in exchange for all the oil I can carry. And they're like, sure, we'll trust you. And I do like the juxtaposition of these characters who are very innocent and they're portrayed as being in white. And Max is not innocent and he is in black, which would seem mm-hmm. to align him more so with the humongous gain, who is also mostly in black. So he comes across as untrustworthy, yet still stand up guy because he's willing to help out but not um without being paid in return right yeah he's willing to help out but not like follow all the way through because when he gets back with that semi-truck like hey can you drive it for us and he goes no i'm out of here mm-hmm. which he doesn't going back and or kind of he's kind of flown back i guess but he does end up driving that truck in the end but his i guess his personality here is more on the along the lines of i'll help you out but i won't I'll I'll help you out, but I won't let it like right out to the end. I'll I'll get to where I can leave, and then I'm done, more or less. Once I get paid, I'm out of here. A couple of the things I did want to mention that I couldn't help but say, like, hey, that's they're going to reuse that in Fury Road. I thought that was really cool. Is the flamethrowers come back and strapping people to the front of your car? They did that in this movie. Yep. Yep, They did. That's cool. Both of those are used a lot in Fury Road. It is. I mean, I would love to see this movie back in 1981 being kind of fresh because you mm-hmm. and I both have already seen Free Road, so some of these ideas are just kind of recycled. Yeah. To us, they to us they look recycled from this movie, but yes. uh, it it would have been super cool to see bodies strapped to the front of cars when they're driving down this uh, down this desert path, going who knows how fast. Yeah, that was cool, and also. Um, when Max has the sawed-off shotgun and he's going to shoot Humongous with it, but it like misfires, just like yep. when it uh, misfired in Fury Road, and uh, of course the tanker is a big oh, yeah. point. I was like, oh, that's cool. So I just found it really cool that George Miller had these ideas in the early '80s, and then he came in the mid 2010s. And he was like, hey, I kind of want to revisit these ideas, but I'm more of an experienced filmmaker. I've got a few Oscars under my belt here. Yeah. (laughs) Um, He's like, I think I can revamp this idea. So for that 
aspect. I think it's really cool to see these ideas he already had, and then he just kind of wanted to revamp them since he was better at his craft. Yeah. I think one thing that is kind of cool that actually isn't reused in Fury Road is the two guys that they capture from the settlement and they strap them to the front of the car, they do end up dying, uh, I think, I want to say about halfway through, but they keep the bodies on there. In fact, they wrap them up in like, they wrap them up in like bags and stuff and they remain on the car. And I think even during the chase, you get to see that car with the two bodies trapped to the front with these bodies mm-hmm. are they're still there, which which they don't really bring that back in Fury Road. But it is kind of a cool, uh, a cool thing there where that one idea that isn't brought back that I thought was actually really interesting is seeing two bodies that are that doing their dying remain on the car. Something I would like to see return for the Mad Max, the Wasteland, whatever it's going to be called. I want to see somebody come back with a boomerang. Yeah, like where'd that go? A deadly boomerang where he conks the guy in the head and it like buries into his skull. Then he chops mm-hmm. the other guy's fingers off with it. That was cool addition with that feral kid where he's a pretty tough kid and he's like chucking his boomerang at people. Oh, yeah. <laughs> like, oh yeah. Yeah, isn't, 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 I think Australia is known for like possibly creating the boomerang or something like that. I don't, it's per- perhaps that's true. I don't know. I don't know anything about the creation of the boomerang. I but just, yeah, it yeah. would be cool to see because that's one thing uh, that really, I guess this one and on have, or, I mean, as far as I know, have is like these creative weapons. Here they have a boomerang that's razor sharp, um, yeah. which kind of reminds me of, I forget the villain, but it's a it's a villain in uh, one of the 007 villains that has a hat that has a sharp ring around the rim of it. And he uses it to toss it like a uh, like a frisbee almost. Oh yeah, so odd job. It reminds me of it kind of reminds me of that uh, kind of aspect. It, it would be cool to see more like these creative weapons, some something like this, uh, where it seems simple, but it's actually deadly, like a boomerang. Here, I do know that the scene when the kid throws a boomerang and it lodges in that guy's head, they had to cut that down because they wanted to get an M rating for the MPAA, which is at the time was for general audiences. That was what it was state what it stood for. They had to cut that down in a cut, I think, one or two other scenes that they cut them down so that way the MPA would give them that M rating. This is one of them. Oh, yeah. That is that is interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I do know that this movie was a lot more violent and bloodier in its original cut, but they had to cut it down for Australia because they were like, the censor board was like, uh-uh. And then kind of, again, once again, for the MPA, they wanted to, I guess, they wanted to get a bit more money than just getting an R rating out of the out of the gate, get an M rating where they it can be more for general audiences here. Something I can't help but laugh about though is the use of this gyrocopter, especially towards the end. Yeah. Just watching them fly around. I'm sorry, but James, you brought up James Bond with Odd Job in his deadly hat. Well, in I think it's like the movie right after that, or not too long after that, James Bond uses a gyrocopter. Oh, that's funny. And it's it looks awful because there's some awful mm-hmm. like um, projection screen behind him as he's flying around in it. Okay, nice. for the time, that would have been cool because, hey, nobody's seen a little mini helicopter before. That's open air. At this point, it just, I don't know, it doesn't really work, um, especially some of those shots towards the end of the camera, like just panning left to right of and gyros just like looking down on the scene and to me it seems to just elongate the scene unnecessarily but oh yeah i couldn't help but laugh just like i'm like thinking of both of these big grown men sitting there in this gyrocopter just flying across 
the yeah. desert. <laughs> yeah. Now, yeah, I would agree with you. This, once again, is kind of an 80s thing, I guess. Uh, it's uh, it's more there to build intensity, but at the same time, they're focusing on the gyrocopter, which, I mean, already kind of has some pretty questionable cinematography that's used with it at times. Uh, once with him kind of reacting to things in the, in the, in the copter, but also when it's like, I guess I guess it's like a point of view shot of him looking down. You can kind of see his feet and some more of the uh, frame of it of the gyrocopter, but you're seeing the cars underneath. It's not the cinematography here for the gyrocopter is not all that great, in my opinion. It works, but it's compared to everything else here. I think this is probably the weakest point when it comes to cinematography. One of the better scenes that I think actually gives us some real stakes and some intensity. That's not just a car chase of, oh my gosh, they could crash, but when um, they're coming back into the settlement and Wes gets in there and Wes is fighting people and he's getting shot, but then other people are getting shot as well. Papagallo gets hurt. To me, that seemed like, wow, what if they actually were able to invade this settlement and then we would have some all out, you know, street brawl here for lack of a better term this was a interesting point in the movie for me because it actually gave me some kind of stakes i felt yeah and it it is kind of cool here too because it kind of brings up that uh i guess i guess this idea of brains versus brawn uh because here in this scene you can tell just i think there are i think it's wes and like one other guy maybe there might be a third one with him but it's only a handful of guys get in, and you can tell they can very they can pretty easily outnumber or out uh, outfight this entire settlement here. Especially Wes himself, who survives quite a long time before he eventually escapes. You get this idea of, oh, uh, this isn't good because they made they made some pretty significant damage just with the three of them compared to everybody else there in the settlement. And there at the end, they outsmart the entire gang by putting the gas into different vehicles instead of the tanker like they had originally planned on. So they eventually outsmarted them, even though the other group was far more uh, on the end of we know we know how to fight here in the wasteland. Yeah, this is an interesting kind of retelling of what we've seen throughout history is when one group lays siege to another group in a city and that's kind of what they're going to do here is they're like well you know we've tried to invade you we've stolen your caravans that have been trying to escape so now we're going to lay siege to you and uh, i think for more of a more modern example the walking dead does this really well Uh, So if you've seen that show, you'll know what I'm talking about. There's always some big bad that comes along and he's going to lay siege to their city or try and invade it. I also couldn't help but think of The Empire Strikes Back where the Millennium Falcon is under repair. In this, the semi-truck needs to be under repair from uh, Humongous shooting his funny scoped revolver um, (laughs) at the truck. (laughs) Yep. And, um, yeah, so this was really when it hit me that, oh, okay, uh, George Miller watched Star Wars and Max is the Han Solo character. The truck is out of commission and he has to repair it and the Empire is going to lay siege to them on the Haas system and they have to escape. So this plot element really brought me back to Empire. Yeah, I can definitely see that. And, 
Uh, and even this action scene that comes after this scene when they when Max does accept the role of driving the tanker, this action scene that follows is like probably the best of the of the entire movie here. And it goes on. I mean, really, all the action scenes here go on for a long time. Oh, I yeah. think this one's definitely the longest. Like, I think it clocks in around twenty minutes. I want to say, yep. which is long for a, for mm-hmm. a movie like this. But it's not with that. It doesn't. I, I never felt like I was ever drained enough to like. Oh, we have another action scene. Uh. <laughs> it was like I'm excited to see where this is going to go because previous action scenes that have happened up to this point have been really engaging and this one it's like they took a step up and they made it even more engaging than the previous i think two or three that have that have been here and they even then that's saying quite a bit yeah i was interested in the beginning and i was extremely impressed with how they're able to film such a big scene involving a semi-truck and all those vehicles i imagine that would be incredibly hard to film for especially without any sort of real visual effects like um digital effects i should say like post-production stuff at all so for that aspect kudos very well done oh yeah but like especially when they blow up the town like that's all practical it looks really really good oh it does especially this time and that's one of the that's one of the things that really still i would say holds up in this movie is especially that town explosion looks really good even by today's standards Something I was disappointed with is this female character. She's only known as Warrior Woman. To me, she looks interesting. She's beautiful. She has a cool outfit. I think that she could be an interesting companion to Max, and clearly they allude at maybe some possible chemistry between the two because she's like, I had to, I had you pegged all wrong. You're actually a pretty good guy, and they kind of give each other this look. I think it'd be cool to see... Um, a Mad Max style film with a female lead like her. And then we would get, I think Miller would rectify that situation in Fury Road by making Furiosa a strong female lead that her and Max play off extremely well. I can see there's a seed of that right here, but unfortunately they they don't do anything with it and she gets killed off, which I was bummed about. Yeah, I would have liked, because they do kind of show that there is more than one of, I guess, her, uh, these warrior women here. They do have one more, but I do believe she gets killed in one of the battles that they have before they leave. Um, but yeah, it would have, I was thinking, are they going to build off of this character? And they kind of do. She's very much a, uh, she's more of a political figure in this little settlement that they have. But aside from that, there really isn't too much that they give to her. And, and to be fair, there are a lot of characters here that we do have to keep track of already. But, yeah, her death is something that, even though she's built up to be uh, a very well-rounded warrior here, the fight that she has at the very end kind of, I guess, it's almost a betrayal of the character, at least from what we've been led to believe, is when she dies, it kind of seems like she goes out with a sputter instead of going out with a bang. And if I'm not mistaken, like, everybody who was going with Max in the tanker dies except the feral kid. Yeah, pretty much. There's like, I think, there's, I want to say about four or five in total on the tanker. And when when they get out of it, it's just the Feral Kid and Max. Yeah. Uh, Also, we do have one moment of character connections here where we're trying to get at something a little deeper. And I think it fails miserably, unfortunately. It's when Papagallo is trying to get Max to tell his story and get him to stay and say, you know, you're not the only one who's experienced loss. We got to, you know, hash this out. And he just kind of gives this weird 
kind of just pecking like, what's your story, man? Huh? What's your story? And then there's this awfully cheesy punch where he, where Max punches Papagallo. And I'm like, gosh, man, they, they messed the scene up. It just didn't work for me. I was, I was disappointed because Papagallo should be more of a mentor type figure since he's older and clearly the leader, but he's, but he's just not. Yeah, this is another one of those cases where they have a good, they have an interesting character, but they don't really do much to explore them. Mm-hmm. And I did mention earlier that sometimes this movie, the ambiguity aids in its in its taste. This is not, this and the Warrior Woman are not really one of those times. There's something there and you can tell that they have history on them. And you can probably imagine the situation or their life story that the movie doesn't tell you. But it would have been nice to have a bit more to those characters because they are interesting characters. But there is not much time given to them. I mean, don't get me wrong. They're not, they're not exactly cardboard cutouts. But in terms of, like, talking about their history and developing their their character and talking about their personality, they don't really explore much of that at all. Which is, I mean, it's, it does, like, it does leave some things to be desired. It would have been nice to see that kind of stuff. Albeit, it may have been at the expense of uh, derailing the movie in this, in this, at least in this scene or maybe previous scenes in terms of keeping us on track, which has done a really good job, I would say, pretty much for its entire runtime, keeping itself pretty much focused on one idea, not going nuts like the last one. And you're right. It is possible some kind of scene of that sort could derail the pacing and drive of the movie. I know that I've spoken before. I always hate um, campfire uh, character development scenes. Oh yeah. One of my, one of the examples I always come back to is in the Expendables 2, where they're camped out in this abandoned city for some reason, and they just all have their little character bonding scenes. I really hate those scenes because they're just incredibly forced where it's at nighttime. They've got nothing better to do but talk and tell some sad backstory so we can quote, care about them, unquote. Uh, So, no, I don't like those because those are incredibly, they're not organic at all. And they do derail from the pacing of the movie. So I don't want something like that. But if they're going to try and give us something between Max and Papagallo, then don't have it just be goofy. Yeah. And I guess it just kind of goes with this community all the way around there. You can tell that they have history and you can tell that there's some original material with them, but there's not much that it's really explored there aside from we have the gas and we got to get out of here and we're good people. That's about as far as it goes. I mean, that's to be fair, this movie is not necessarily going for anything all that deep. It's very much an action movie. It does have a a central idea, uh, an essential message of be careful because gas are things like it will become your essentially your overlord it become your master if you're not careful but <laughs> once again yeah. it's not necessarily the most it's not necessarily like a citizen kane or the deepest film you've ever seen before it's it's very much an action movie yes and it is an action movie and that's fine but i do wish there was a bit more emotionality for me to bite onto and give a care if that makes sense right i would have liked just some more discussion i guess take my time i'm going to explain what happened what who i am and things of that nature in this movie but i do recognize that as- with my own personal feelings aside i do recognize that that probably wouldn't have worked with the movie of this caliber uh maybe a little bit more explaining would have been nice but at the same time ambiguity does add to the tastefulness of this film 
but there are moments when it doesn't work. Yeah, and another issue here is with the ending fight. I'm I'm questioning where is Humongous this whole time? He comes in at the very end and cranks up the NOS, which is kind of funny. He goes shooting off, yep. and they eventually just crash into each other, which I'll speak to here in just a minute. But it does cut a lot between Wes and Max because Wes is more so the antagonist to Max than Humongous ever was. They never were. They right. only had one showdown and like saw each other really one time aside from the end. So I was a little disappointed because I felt like there was a conflict of who the main villain was in this movie because Wes gets more screen time than Humongous. It seems that way. I'm not sure if that's exactly true. But to me, it's like you got to pick one as the real big bad and then make it that way and then don't let the sub-villain get more time with the hero than the, the main villain. That just seemed a little too conflicting to me. Right. And, and I would say that uh, I'd, although it doesn't bother me that the protege is the one who gets the most screen time and the big bad is more or less his mentor, that doesn't bother me too much. But yeah, I would agree with you here in this ending. It does kind of flip back and forth and it tries to put Humongous in on more of a higher level or give him more screen time, give him more of a scare factor. But everything leading up to this has shown Wes is more the big bad here. Uh, or at least the main focus of villainy, whereas uh, whereas Humongous is there more as support for this character, which doesn't bother me too much, but here in the ending, I do feel like we switch back and forth too often. I think that this chase, although it's really fun and everything, we do it does it is kind of hard to find who we're supposed to be focusing on because for most of it, it's kind of just the nameless gang members from Humongous and his people. Uh, there are moments when Wes and uh, when Wes and Humongous show up, but for a lot of it, it it's more just these faceless villains uh, from Humongous's gang that we, I mean, we do have some setup for them. Don't get me wrong, but this is nothing compared to having a villain like Wes constantly being pers- constantly pursuing our main ca- our main leads and being the one who's causing all the issues with his people behind him also following suit. Yes, and. Although this chase does start intense for me, ultimately I think it kind of fizzles out a bit. Not be- I do think that where they smash into each other and Humongous is dead, that's the most satisfying death of both movies, I would say, yeah. because it's just, wow, it's it's huge. But I think it's because the chase goes on for 20 minutes there towards the end. And then I'm kind of wondering, okay, how is this ever going to end? There's like no sense of real urgency here because it just seems like we're just going to go on forever. And also I felt like it was kind of messed up by some of the cuts to the aerial shots and then a monotonous score for this. So although it does start off strong and end strong for a while there, it is kind of uh, it's I'm feeling it. Yeah, I would say for me, the, this whole chase didn't bother me too much, but the cuts to the gyrocopter are the things that I think are could have used a little bit of work uh, in this, in this, at least in this scene. They do detract a bit from the style that's on the ground because it's in the air. It's very shaky. It's not very. It's not centered. And I get it. It's an action scene, and it's already kind of shaky just by nature. But the cinematography style from the air and the ground are two com- are very different. And there's a big dichotomy, and it's a very big cut from one from the ground to the air, and. I mean, it were. I mean, I can see where it would work, but I don't think that they, it was edited in or maybe shot in the way that would have 
I guess, aided to this action scene here at the end. I mean, it is important, and somehow he survives that crash, but the uh, the gyrocopter is probably the biggest problem I have with this action scene here, is it just kind of, it's, it just feels unfocused with this gyrocopter because it is a different style than the rest of, than the rest of the action scene. Okay, so what did you think of the twist, though, when you find out it was just sand? And I don't think Max knew. I, that's, that's what I was wondering, yeah. is if Max knew about this plan. And I got uh, confused for me. And I was like, okay, then was, where, how do they how do they hide <laughs> their real gas then? Yeah. And I was like, maybe they just didn't have gas at all. What if they just didn't have any? Yeah. I thought that would, have been, that would have been an interesting twist. Wouldn't have made much sense, but would have been, it would have been an interesting twist. I thought the same thing. I thought there was going to be this cruel twist where they had they ultimately weren't as good of people as Max thought they were and they were just using him as this massive decoy just to save their own hide so they'll right. drive out the back while he drives out the front to protect their oil come to find out there was no oil all along they had tricked him and he went all of through all of that those people I, I, it wouldn't make any sense why people were dying for it i guess um yeah but Nevertheless, I thought that was a good twist, and you find it was placed with the people, because that was a big question that I had earlier on, was they sent out three vehicles and eight people died. I thought, how in the world do they think they're all going to drive out of here and make it? Right. Now it makes sense. So that setup and payoff was worth it, I thought. Yeah, and I think that we're kind of led to believe that uh, this ending, the people are not as good as as they came off as. Uh, especially when they replaced their tanker with sand, which I feel like you would have been able to hear that the liquid inside the tank is not <laughs> sloshing around going at that sp- going at those speeds. But I'll let it slide for now. Uh, yeah, I do like I did I didn't I did end up really liking this twist that it's actually with the people the 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 gas that belongs to them is with them, not with some stranger who is just a decoy. Uh, I did enjoy this twist that it it that it ended up being a brains versus brawn situation and the brains came out of the end. That seems to be a constant uh, thing that they've referred back to here uh, with Max and with this like community that they have is they always end up outsmarting the, the enemy, not fighting them because I mean, in reality, they don't have much of a chance with them in terms of uh, combat, but with brains, they absolutely do. Now, if Max didn't know about the plan, how would they have had time to fill up that whole tanker with sand and him not, just watch them pump sand out of the desert. Yeah. My only guess is he does leave for a brief period of time. So my guess is that they pumped it in then. They don't explain that, but that's just my guess. It's also funny because they're telling Max that they're going to go to the beach for safety. Yep. But then they head north. I mean, maybe there's a beach up north because they're in Australia. So I guess you could go in any of the cardinal directions and make it to the beach. But... For some reason, I was associating, I wasn't associating the beach with the north because I I mean, who does? You think of tropics as being in the south and more so mountainous wintry ranges of the north. It just seemed odd. Who knows? Yeah. My guess is this is set in some random place in the world. No really, I guess no real point on the map, just some random desert. And mm-hmm. my only my other guess is the them saying we're going to go north is more of a thematic element where they're heading towards I guess uh, goodness or things of that nature, which is usually usually in terms of cardinal scales, if you uh, towards or forwards is more of a pursuit of the good in life or 
a journey or things like that. So that's my guess. They did it for more thematic reasons. Is we're gonna go north of the beach, but yeah, we never really do. We never do see the beach, and for all we know, the beach probably doesn't exist uh, anywhere, or they may not have made it. But it doesn't really matter if they did or not. The point here is that Mad Max kind of gets his humanity back and does help out this tribe or this community here at the very end. Yeah, and we get the closing monologue. We find out the narrator is the chief of the great northern tribe. Yep. who we knew as the feral boy this whole time i don't know he feral means that you're wild and you're just uneducated you're like an animal this is like an eloquent wise sage narrating the opening and closing and it makes something changed between the few for a few years i guess there must be a big library preserved up in the north <laughs> for this boy to be educated as such yep that was yep. a little surprising but it does make sense why the story focused on the boy so much because he was kind of a major player in this plot and sorry i had to clear my throat and i was confused throughout the movie why do we keep cutting back to this boy why do we just have shots of this boy doing stuff but it makes sense now because it's also in a way told from his perspective he is remembering back this is his memories I right. suppose, because this is supposed to take, like, he's supposed to be like, what, I don't know, 70, 80 years old, and he's remembering back to when he was eight. So right. maybe that's an excuse they can give as to why the ideology is not fleshed out. But I was surprised. Were you surprised? Yeah, I was a little bit surprised because uh, I, I guess I didn't catch it on my initial viewing. I When I looked at the summary, it says, oh, it turns out that the Pharaoh Kid was the narrator all along. I was like, oh, that's interesting. I guess I missed that in the movie. Mm. Um, I think my biggest problem is we don't really focus on the Pharaoh Kid all that much. I guess not enough for it to seem like that big of a deal that, hey, he's actually the, you know, he's sure. actually the narrator in this movie. <laughs> yes. um, I, w I guess I would have liked him to play a, a bigger role. Because, you know, he really does stuff here at the very end to help out, aside from one other scene. But... Yeah, I do think it works for the Pharaoh kid to be the one who's narrating the story, but I would like to, once again, more from him, like with a lot of other folk in this movie. Yeah, another movie that does this better is Legends of the Fall, where it's being oh, recounted yeah. through their um, Indian, ooh, his name is Staff, I believe. Yeah, he's old. He's recounting the whole story to them. Um, I also couldn't help but think of the movie Cloud Atlas, maybe, where old future but ancient tom hanks is is like telling about the stories i don't know i saw that movie once in theaters but this is nothing new where it's kind of an old tribal right. tale but i definitely agree give us a reason to believe this feral boy somehow transitions into a wise sage of the great leader of the northern tribe that was just out of nowhere Right, yeah. I mean, it, it, once again, it works, but I wish there was more to it. My initial guess is why the kid was here was more to do with kind of a lead-in for Max to gain his humanity back. And the kid was the thing that showed him that even though he has a wild side to him, he still is, has some good to him, like just like the feral kid does. And he still is, even though he's the kid himself is rather wild and has kind of off the hinge, there's still some, he still knows where his priorities lie, even though he, he may not even know it himself. So that's kind of what I was gathering at first. I'm sure that still, that still applies, but yeah, it works a bit more to show that yeah, he was the narrator the whole time. <laughs> yes, I, 
I was going to make a joke, but it would be a spoiler to another movie we're going to review, so I'm not going to do it. You'll have to wait, listeners, to find out what I was going to say. I thought the kid was going to die here at the end, actually. I thought he was going to fall off the truck and die, and it was going to be a horrible tragedy. So did I. And I mean, Mad Max, it wouldn't surprise me that they would go that far because they killed a kid in the first one, too. That's right. So for for this movie, it doesn't really hold much back uh, in terms of getting things to the way that they need to be for the story to work, like killing a kid or whatever. So I was not, I would not be surprised if they went that route, which I don't think they kill any, anybody younger than I guess adult age in this movie that is as far as I was able to see. Yeah. You're but, right. But yeah, I mean, I was not surprised if I wouldn't have been surprised if they actually went that route, but they didn't. He survives. The one line I did like here at the end was when the narrator says that was the last we ever saw of him. He lives now only in my memories. Mm-hmm. and I thought that was cool, and it was kind of a reverse shot because the first one, I believe, zooms in on him with his car with the sunset backdrop and a cool pose, really cool shot, and then this one kind of pulls out, you know, the memory is receding, the story is finished. I right. thought all of that worked well. The only thing is I wish they would have made Max a bit more legendary. If I would have known this was the angle they were going for as – this like mythical road warrior that popped up one day and saved their village and then just disappeared into the wasteland. I love those ideas. I just wish I would have, they they would have had a bit more emphasis and impact. Yeah, I can agree with, I can agree with that. Yeah. They're, they're very much going for a uh, savior like archetype here with, with Max being the one who is the one who get, who is, uh, who gets them away from humongous and the gang gets them to where they, Need to go, I guess you could consider it the promised land or what have you. There, I wouldn't say that there are necessarily biblical ties here. I mean, there, you could probably, you could probably pinpoint a couple of uh, moments where they would subtly be referencing the Bible, but it, it, for the most part, it's just the, it's just the, this man is a good man, even though he doesn't realize it. And he is the one who caused, he let us escape. No, I can definitely see possibly, and I brought that up earlier, this is kind of like an Old Testament turf war, it seems like, where we've got these two savage-esque tribes duking it out over a piece of land or a resource that they want. But yeah, I mean, in a way, I could also see him sort of as a Moses figure, where he does lead these people out of um, oppression and sort of exile into more so the promised land. He never reaches the promised land. He's also a reluctant leader, kind of like that Moses figure. Regardless, it's like you're saying more of that ancient archetype figure that right. they're very much drawing from and kind of putting in a post-apocalyptic world. So like, once again, I love these ideas. I just wish we would have had a bit more oomph, a bit more meat to it. But right. anyways, Alan, what is your rating and recommendation for the Road Warrior Mad Max 2. Aside from my, I guess, numerous uh, things I don't really enjoy too much about this movie, mostly that it's it feels a bit... Uh, I, think my, I think the main one, the main issue that I have with this is that it, I feel like there could have been a lot more fleshing out of characters and things of that nature, like the villain or Papagallo or what have you. Uh, aside from those, I do really enjoy Mad Max 2, The Road Warrior. I found it's uh, even its sense of production design to be really well done with not only its explosions, but also its cinematography 
it has a great sense of scale and how this wasteland is way like empty and it's basically only sand. I do enjoy, for the most part, and aside from the moments that don't work, the ambiguity of you don't really know much about these characters. They're unique enough that you can kind of imagine a backstory to them, but it's never stated in the movie. I do really enjoy that aspect when it works. And it works for the most part for a lot of the movie. Um, I think where, it, once again, where it falls is more of just getting things to a point where you can reasonably create a backstory or a reason or things of that nature to apply to certain things. In the end, I still really do enjoy this movie and I would definitely return to it and I'd love to own it on Blu-ray now that I've seen it. Uh, I'm giving it a 7 out of 10 with a pretty high recommend for me. I think that despite my criticisms, it's still a good film in one that has, I can definitely see why it has left a huge legacy, especially after coming off of the first one. Well, The Road Warrior Mad Max 2 is not much better than Mad Max. In fact, it's worse in important ways. Miller figured out how to better edit, keep a mostly consistent tone, and bring a stronger production quality. Chase sequences are mostly better, and yes, they are impressive, but most go on for too long and quickly lose their intensity. Unfortunately, The Road Warrior is a weak film. Everyone is a non-character. I understand we don't watch Mad Max movies for strong characters, but I gotta at least feel attached to someone and hate the bad guy, and I feel neither of those things in this movie. The humongous, despite being cheesy, could have had more motivation. We never see his point of view. The warrior woman is a wasted character. Papa Gallo, the old teacher figure, teaches Max nothing, except we've all lost someone, so don't be selfish. Wes is just a single-minded maniac who's upset about losing his feminine slave. And even Max is more one-note than the last film. Having Max be the reluctant savior, stop some nut jobs and save some people is fine, but there's nothing solid about the story that I could cling on to or that will stick with me after this review. An example of revamping a sequel is Sam Raimi's The Evil Dead 2. Miller is beefing up the Mad Max skeleton of what will be his masterpiece Fury Road, but he's just not there yet. And I think my lack of enjoyment for the first and second film is likely due to that I'm spoiled by Fury Road. It's like reading an author's finished novel but then being asked to equally grade some of his rougher drafts. Obviously each Mad Max film gets progressively better, except I've heard some not so good things about the next one but I have hope for it. I just know how great Fury Road is and comparing this one, which has the ideas but not the successful execution, is tough to wipe my mind clean when comparing in the whole point of a retrospective is not to completely, you know, just wipe my memories clean of that. The Road Warrior Mad Max 2 receives 5 stars out of 10 with a not recommend. And I think you kind of hit the nail on the head when you said that maybe Fury Road has ruined us for this movie. Because I'm sure that a lot of people who have only seen Fury Road and go back to see these other movies will be, I guess, put back a little bit because Fury Road is, especially for its production value, is miles beyond these two movies. Part of that's due to age. Once again, that's just how things were back in the day and they couldn't do as much as they can as we can now and technology and all kinds of stuff. For the time, it's still definitely impressive. Mad Max 2 here is, but there are still things that kind of leave it back in the 80s and not something that thrusts itself too far into the future. Which, we'll see what happens with Mad Max Fury Road in a number of years. But, 
that just kind of seems like that's the issue here with Mad Max 2 is that it doesn't have, I guess, stuff. Its predecessor, I guess, ruins what came before it. Although it's important to know where it came from, that is still there. Yes, I agree that I do like the fact that we are going back and watching these movies because all of the elements that I think work so well in Fury Road, it's really cool to see those have existed all along, yeah. but they've just been honed, um, I would say, better and better. And I'll save my thoughts for that review as to what I think of those certain elements. But it is, I do think that kind of at least messed it up for me seeing Fury Road first because George Miller has like I said, a couple Oscars under his belt. He knows more so what he's doing with storytelling, filmmaking, editing, uh, production, even fleshing out the ide- ideology of the Immortan Joe and Furiosa and Gas Farm and right. all of those things. He brings those more, more so creative elements to a greater degree. And even he's figured out how to bring more emotionality to that movie, whereas we're not getting that here. But it's almost like I can't completely blame him because this is his second movie. And for a second movie, it's still extremely well done and creative in certain elements. But it's just hard. And I think it's like I said, it's like reading, okay, here's my finished book. Here's like the culmination of everything I've been working on. But then it's like looking back at earlier drafts of the book. It's like, uh, yeah, like... I like what you did with the finished product and I like what you're doing here in this draft. It just doesn't feel complete yet because I know what the complete, I know what the end product is and it's right. Fury Road. So I think I might've said that in the last review also is it's just tough when <laughs> you're trying to like pretend like you've never seen the director's final vision before. It's right. almost, it, it's kind of like when we watch Blade Runner, the final cut, and then we went back and watched the theatrical cut and it was like, ugh. What what were you doing here? Right. And then right. it's like, well, I wasn't completely finished yet. You know, it took me another 20, 30 years to really get my final vision out there. And I feel like that's kind of the way I don't want to completely say that because these are standalone films that are beloved by a lot of people. These movies right. are highly rated and considered a strong cult classic. So I'm not not trying to say that, but that's the best analogy I could come up with. Yeah, and I'm to be fair, I I've seen the first Mad Max before we even did this retrospective, mm-hmm. so I kind of already knew where this was already headed to begin with. <laughs> yeah. Whereas you had only seen about half an hour of it, yeah. uh, so I kind of already had the idea of okay, well, I know what I'm getting into before we even start this podcast retrospective. Even though I've already seen Fury Road, I know where it begins. I know where Mad Max's inception came from and why it's here. Things of that nature. So I already knew what I had getting what I had getting into it, which may soften my, I guess, crit- criticisms when it comes to this kind of movie and how it ages and whatnot. Well, listeners, thank you so much for joining us on our review of. I like saying it this way. This is just the way I want to say it. I've seen it build this way. The Road Warrior Mad Max 2 sounds out of sequence, but I like saying it that way. Yeah, so, is, that's it's built that way too. Is there is that like an actual title? backwards uh, yes i've seen it that i've seen it that way interesting so it's got four titles to it then mad max 2 the road warrior 
Mad Max 2 The Road Warrior and The Road Warrior Mad Max 2. Yes. So the way that I say it is my favorite way. I think that's the way that I first saw it was just titled as The Road Warrior colon Mad Max 2. So I've rolled with it ever since and I'm never going to call it anything other than that. So don't comment down below and say I'm saying it wrong because I know what I'm saying. <laughs> but it all means the same thing anyways. So it, it does. It means the exact same thing. It doesn't matter how Yoda-esque you make it. Still Mad Max 2. But listeners, once again, thank you so much for joining us. We do want to know what you thought of the Road Warrior Mad Max 2. So is this better than the first one? Is it worse? Is this your favorite? Because I know many people do consider this to be their favorite Mad Max movie of the four. So go ahead and leave your comments down below. I'm excited and intrigued to see what you all think of this one, especially because I know that my thoughts are at odds with like almost everybody else's thoughts (laughs) of this movie. But uh, nevertheless, we love discussing movies and we love discussing them with you. So make sure that you like and share this with your friends and family. Also, if you're listening on iTunes, please give us a five-star rating. That does help us uh, get discovered by other people who want to have a good time uh, listening and discussing movies as well. So we do want to grow the Silver Screen Guide community, and that's a great way to do it. And to make sure you stay up to date on all the latest posts, podcasts, videos, make sure to subscribe through either Facebook or Twitter or even through email. Uh, Those links are all in the description below. Very easy to find and navigate. Also, if you do want to hear more from us, not just uh, bonus podcasts, but you want to hear some uh, movie commentaries or do some Q&As with us or hear what we think about the latest movie news and trailers, well, just for the price of a Starbucks cup of coffee, you can head on over to Patreon, sign up, and you'll get all of that great content that is yours to keep. Starbucks cup of coffee, you drink and it's gone. This is yours. Uh, even if you stop subscribing someday in the future, you'll still, still get to keep that content. So it's a really great value for your money. It does help us keep the lights on here. It helps us pay the bills to for storage and bandwidth. That's not free and that's not cheap. So we do appreciate your uh, financial support there as well for the podcast. So once again, listeners, thank you for joining us. Next week is not Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. Next week is Pet Cemetery, the original 80s adaptation of the Stephen King novel. Just so you all know, I finished the novel a few weeks ago, and you'll have to wait to see what I thought of the novel and how it holds up against the movie. I have seen the movie before. Have you seen it, Alan? I have not. I've always heard of it, but I haven't ever sat down to watch it. I actually haven't seen too many Stephen King movie adaptations aside from like The Shining and maybe one or two others. That's Oh yeah, I guess Shawshank Redemption, but yes. aside from a few, a handful of movies, I haven't really seen many uh, adaptations of Stephen King's novels to the big screen. I'm excited to return to this one and see how my thoughts have changed. There's one sequence in particular I'm really looking forward to because I remember being shocked at just how kind of nightmare fuel it was. I'll be excited to see what you think because it's really unexpected when we get to that scene. It's, um, it works into the plot really well, though. And I'm excited to see what they do with the new movie. I'm hoping they'll do it justice, but... As usual with Stephen King, his novels are usually so big and epic, they're 
fairly hard to stick true unless it's Shawshank, which was adapted from a novella, or The Green Mile is one of the best adaptations of his work, I think. So I'm excited to see what they can do with it and see what Alan thinks as well. I'm excited. I have seen the trailer for the new one. Uh, it looks pretty interesting, so I guess we'll find out what happens when it comes out. Actually, it's rather soon, I think. Yeah, it, the trailer does look interesting, but some of it is not in the book, so I'm kind of intrigued to see what they're trying to go with with some of that, because I'm like, that's not what. Yeah, I wonder how loose of an adaptation it is or how strong of one. Mm-hmm. I guess we'll find out when the movie comes out, though. Yeah. Well, Alan, thank you for joining me. Sure thing. All right, listeners, we will be back, so stay tuned next week for Pet Cemetery. Ooh, I gotta go to the bathroom. I always do so bad at the end of these. <laughs>